you broken, but we come to you as the giver of the bread of life, the manna from heaven, the bread that lasts to eternity and endures forever. In Jesus, our living Lord. Amen. So please be seated. Do you do prayer in the streets on Saturdays? Who was doing prayer in the street yesterday? Elam. And I was congratulating Bangor Parish. Well, I'm glad you… because I was at a funeral in Bangor yesterday of a lady called Mary McDowell in Trinity Presbyterian Church. And somebody said, hey, they know Bangor Parish does it. They thought Bangor Parish had prayed for them, but I'm sure that the Elam prayers will be at least as good as those of Bangor Parish. Um, I really, what I'm going to say this morning uh, was not what I set out to say, even the passage I'm going to preach on, which is that passage from Exodus 16, if anybody's got a Bible, Exodus 16 from verse 2, uh, was not the one I really intended to preach on, it was the second one, but I was drawn to that passage for a, a range of reasons, but I think because the Lord has laid something in my heart that He wants to say to you this morning. And it's something like this. Well, let me start from this perspective. I would imagine that even the youngest person in this congregation, well, maybe not the very youngest, hopefully not the very youngest, but most of you have had a time in your life or in your experience, or in your family, or in your employment, or in your church, or in your community when you have been in a wilderness, or in a desert place. And in that desert place, you have had certain decisions that you've either made subconsciously or consciously, perhaps, in the end, as to what you're going to do about being in that particular desert place. Matt Redman, in what is the Archbishop of Canterbury's favorite hymn or song, Blessed Be Your Name, puts these words onto it. Blessed be your name, when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness, you see, it resonates. Blessed be your name. And it's all very well uh, living our Christian lives when everything is going very well. But actually, it's in the desert place or in the wilderness that we grow in our Christian faith, that we experience the presence and the power of the living God if we allow Him to meet us in those places. I don't know whether any of you have ever been to a desert. Anybody here ever been to a desert? Right? Yes, some people have. Well, I've been to two or three. I've been in the Holy Land to the wilderness. Uh, presumably where Jesus was taken to be tempted in preparation for His ministry. And I had a very, 
memorable occasion when I was invited by the Diocese of Egypt. And Grant Lamarckhand was an assistant bishop in the Diocese of Egypt, but worked in Ethiopia. That tells you the size of the diocese, right? And I was invited to do a clergy conference on the edge of the Western Desert. Anybody been to the Sahara? No? Well, it's quite an experience. And Liz sent me a little text to say she'd been talking to someone who said, I think I was in that monastery. It was a Coptic monastery. And my memories of that monastery was that the food was awful. I said, that's the one. Maybe they're all like that in the desert. That's the one. <coughs> Scrawny meat, smelly cheese, eggs that are kind of black between the yolk and the white, you know, that kind of thing. The only thing that rescued me in the desert in the monastery was that Wednesday and Friday were fast days. And I was relieved because the only thing you were given on fast days was beans. I thought, thank the Lord for beans. Doesn't matter, I would eat beans till they were coming out of my ears in comparison to all that dreadful food, because it's very hard to get food in and around the desert. Or some of you will have been or seen uh, the desert around uh, in Southern California, where a lot of those wildfires are happening at the moment. And the desert is a place of loneliness. The desert is a place of insecurity. The desert is a place of disorientation. The desert is a place of emptiness. The desert is a place which is barren. The desert is very dark when it's dark at night and very bright when the sun is shining down on you as it is in southern Spain and Portugal at the moment, but even worse than that. So the desert is a place where you don't want to be for too long. And God's people, at the beginning of Exodus chapter 16, find themselves in the desert place. And what they do when they're in the desert place is very sim similar to what we do in our own lives as well, and I'm going to suggest some things. And I think you're going to say, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yep, that's true, right? I was able to illustrate from my wife earlier on, but she's not here today. But she would say, yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. At least I would say for her, right? But it's true for me too, and it's true for you too, and it's true for the people of Israel in the desert. And here are three things that we instinctively in our humanity do when we're in the desert place and that are in the end going to serve us very, very badly if that's where we get stuck. Number one, when we are in the desert place, we start to romanticize about the past. We start saying, oh, wasn't the past absolutely wonderful? Now, uh, at 90 years of age, does that get worse or better? I don't know, right? We say, oh, the olden days, in the good old days, we used to do this, and we used to do that, and we used to do the other thing, and life was much better, and everybody was more moral, and the church 
was full. I remember being told as a curate in Carrickfergus and St. Nicholas's, in the olden days, this church was full, and there were seats up the aisle. This was the 1970s, and I went back to all the old preacher's books that we have, and I looked at them. Do you know something? The numbers were just the same then as they were in the, in the 30s. They were the same as they were in the 70s. But do you know what? Everybody remembered Christmas and harvests and Easter's and Remembrance Sundays and big special occasions and were acting in their heads as though it was all like that. Now, so what happens is that we begin to look back to the past with rose-tinted spectacles. So, the people of Israel are saying at the beginning of this reading in Exodus 16, 2, or 3, maybe it is, my thing doesn't have verses in it. When we sat by the flesh pots, well, actually, that's what it says in my version. It means pots of meat, just in case you'd misunderstand. When we sat by the pots of meat with all those big steaks, what I was thinking in the western desert, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. And then in Numbers 11, verse 5, they get even more exotic and graphic about it, and they say, we remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. And we had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we needed, and now we've got none of it. If you know any people who live in former communist countries, you see the same thing happening. You hear people say, some of the older people, you know, ah, but when the communists were in charge, everybody had jobs, and everybody had something to eat. But they totally forget the fact that they were persecuted, put down, you know, yeah. And this is what's happening here. They're forgetting what it was like to be slaves in Egypt, and they're only romanticizing about the good things. When we're in the desert place, we romanticize about the past. The second thing we do is we catastrophize. I had to look up a thesaurus to get that word. I knew it existed somewhere. We catastrophize the future. Right. We're there, and we're thinking of the very worst that could happen. Is that not true when you're in the desert place? Something happens in your family to a member of your family. Something happens that really is upsetting, and we think, oh, goodness me, the future is absolutely going to be dire. So they say, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And they actually begin to say, if only we had died in Egypt. If only we had died. In other words, we would be better off dead than here. Now, the tragedy of the world in which we live is that many, especially younger men, come to that conclusion. Because they find themselves in a place of wilderness, a place of disorientation, a place of desert, a place where there's no clear road into the future. 
and tragically decide that it's better to take their own lives. So it's a very, very serious place to find ourselves in. But many of us do it in a, in, a, in a simpler kind of way. We simply, you know, become pessimistic about the future. There can be no future. There is no future. The church is going to be dead in 10 years or whatever it may be, right? You know, we're never, well, you know, I, I often quote Leon Uris in Trinity who says, Ireland has no future, just a past that keeps repeating itself over and over again. My mother used to say, there will never be peace in this place. There will never be peace. We romanticize the past, we catastrophize the future, and we find somebody to blame. That's where it starts. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The whole congregation. They said to them, if only we had died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. What do we do? We blame those who are there to be blamed, right? We blame the rector in churches. We blame the select vestry. And if the blame can't be put there, bishops are very handy. And I always say to people, the good thing about being a bishop is that I'll go home at the end of this service, and you won't be able to get at me, right? We always want somebody to blame. Why are we here in this uncomfortable desert place where we don't know what our future is? We can't see where we're going. We don't even know where we're going to get our next meal from. Why are we here? It's you. And they forget that the very people whom they're blaming are the people who have led them across the Red Sea out of slavery into God's freedom. Right? Isn't that true? And the whole congregation does it. We do this with politicians all the time. Not that we have any to blame here, but uh, we do it with politicians. We do it with people who are in any kind of leadership role in society. We do it in the church rather than taking responsibility for ourselves. Now, I just want to say to you that when we're in the desert place, and I'm sorry Johnson, that you gave me 20 minutes and I might be 25, you never know, or something like that, because I've only got a Fitbit and I can't, can't read it unless I… so I don't know how long it's going to be, but not very long. Uh, anyway, we find ways of blaming, we find ways of catastrophizing, and we find ways of romanticizing. And I'm going to tell you something, all of us has been there. Every one of us has been there. And not only that, it's not a good place to be. It's okay to be there for a little while, long enough to recognize that it's the road to nowhere, but it's not a good place to be. And what we have in our Bible reading from Exodus this morning is this. We have the choice 
of the people of God to go in that direction further and further into meaninglessness and into nothingness and into pessimism and into hopelessness, or else to turn and go in an entirely different direction. And that's what they're being encouraged to do. And the direction they're being encouraged to go in, I want to encourage you to go in too, if you find yourself in a desert place. And here it is just in three brief things. First of all, when you're in the desert place, draw near to God and listen to what He's saying to you. That's the first thing. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people will go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, draw near to God. Draw near to God. One of the most powerful experiences that I ever had was going for the first time in 1999 to South Sudan. And we went to Maridi Diocese, with which we're linked, and we flew in as the first Westerners with Paul Clark and a team from UTV, and we flew into this grass airstrip, and the people were waiting for us. They'd been waiting for seven hours, and they danced us down to the cathedral, and the first thing we had to do was to give our testimonies. Now, those people had just come back from being refugees for years in the Congo and in Uganda. They had seen their children die on the journey. They had seen, in some cases with the women, their husbands murdered. They arrived back in their own place, and there was no planting. The planting hadn't been done. They were dependent on what was naturally on the trees, and bees making honey, and, you know, dirty water. They, they, we were enabling them with utensils to boil and things like that. And you know what they said to us? They said, you see, in the West you have God and things. Here, we have only God. Only God. In the desert, you have only God. There's no point in putting your dependence somewhere else because there's nowhere else to put it, right? There's nowhere else to put it. And they discovered that their salvation was in drawing near to God and in hearing God speaking into the situation. The second thing they discovered was this, that in a situation like that, you are open to God's miraculous provision in a way that you wouldn't be open to it otherwise. God's miraculous provision. I mean, they had no idea what was going to happen, and what happens? The quails, or the quail, whatever the plural of quails, quail is, started flying across. The food appeared. They might have even maybe thought, well, you know, we've seen that before. 
But then what happens is the manna appears, like frost on the ground, and they think, what is that? I've never seen that before. I was telling the congregation at the earlier service that uh, Liz and I were at an amazing, amazing funeral last week, the week before last, of a girl called Bernie McAvoy. And Bernie McAvoy was ordained deacon in the Diocese of Down and Dromore in Saul Church last October, knowing that she had terminal cancer. Now, Bernie believed in miracles. Bernie had come to know the Lord through her mother and herself going to the Christian Renewal Center in Ross Trevor and meeting Cecil and Myrtle Care, and she had been transformed in her whole life. She knew God could do miracles, right? And she trusted in God for a miracle. And Liz and I went to see her just the day before she died in the evening with the agreement of the family, and we were going in to see her only for five minutes, actually to say the prayers of preparation for death. And she looked as though she was sleeping. And then she opened her eyes, and then she pulled the table across very weakly, and she opened her Apple Mac. And she said, now, she says, we're going to plan my funeral service. And we went through it in every detail. The first bit was a thing from Adrian Plass about, uh, from Pilgrim's Pro Pro Progress about uh, coming into the heavenly city. And it ended with this bit about uh, glancing in and seeing the people of God in the heavenly city. And then it said, and I wanted to be there. And her funeral, her coffin was carried up with those words resonate, and I wanted to be there. And we went through the whole funeral service. And then I said, Bernie, I have never been in this situation before, going through a funeral service with someone so close to their death. And she said, Do you know something? Neither have I. And I said, I'm really coming to say the prayers of preparation for death. So just pray those with me now. And I did. And then she went into a sleep and her family didn't want to rouse her from the sleep, but they decided the next day that they were going. They're all from a Catholic background, so they don't know all our hymns and songs, but one of the ones they knew was I, the Lord of Sea and Sky. It's a Jesuit song. And uh, they started singing I, the Lord of Sea and Sky. And they came to the third. They'd got the words out. They came to the end of the third and last verse, and they sang, Here am I, Lord. Is it I, Lord? I have heard you calling in the night. I will go, Lord, if you lead me. I will hold your people in my heart. And she died as they sang the last line. That's miracle. It's not the miracle you could have expected. I didn't ex we sang it at a funeral service because it was her last song. 
That's miracle. And when we find ourselves in the desert place, and especially when we find ourselves in the desert place as we come to the end of our lives, perhaps, the truth is that God remains the God of miracle, and that the kind of miracles that God does, can do, will do, has done, nearly always happen when we're in the desert place because we don't need them or seek them or desire them or expect them when everything's going well. And the last thing that I want to say is this. When we're in the desert place, and when we've gone through all the romanticizing and catastrophizing and blaming and put it to the side, we are going to discover by the grace of God that our God is sufficient for all our needs. Do you say amen in Bangor? No. Our God is sufficient for all our needs. Amen. There is nothing that He cannot do. He is sufficient in every situation. And if you look back over your life, and we started by saying, when were you in the desert place? When were you in the wilderness? When did you think the heavens were like brass and God was a million miles away? When did you think that everything was falling apart and could never be put together again? Start to think, how did God intervene? How did God provide? How did God show Himself to be sufficient for needs which I had and which He knew I had? And the lovely bit of this passage that I love is when, when Moses and Aaron are say, say, look, He has heard your complaining. He has heard… Grumbling's the word, isn't it, in one of the other verses? He has heard your grumbling. He's heard all your moans and groans. Not one of those things has been lost on him. And by his grace and by his mercy, he has provided. And he has provided not just manna which feeds you, humanly speaking, but manna which has come down from heaven, picked up by Jesus in today's gospel reading, which says, this is the bread of life. And this bread of life is a bread which when we eat, we will never hunger again. This water of life is a water which when we drink, we will never thirst again. It provides for us. It's sufficient for us, not just in this world, not even essentially in this world, but because it is eternal forever never fades, never fails. God's sufficiency lasts forever. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And Lord, when we come to admit to You, first of all, that we have been in the desert place and maybe are in some cases in the desert place, Lord, we know that we come to one who also experienced the desert, who also heard your word in the desert, who also saw your sufficiency in the desert, 
and who even knew your eternal reality through his death and resurrection, the one who provides for us and the one who is in his very self the bread of heaven. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you for the way forward he shows. And thank you that he's present to feed us with heavenly bread as we meet around this table. To the glory of his name. Amen. Well, thank you very much, uh, Bishop, for your ministry this morning.